calling his wisdom, well, that's wrong. That's foolishness. Why'd God think of that? What in the world was God thinking when he did that? And that's what is coming or comes from a worldly kind of wisdom, at least as Paul is describing here and saying, you know, this, this whole thing about the cross. I mean, God could have done something different. And even going back to Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus started talking about his death and his burial and his resurrection, Peter said, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. This whole crucified Christ thing. What is this about? How does this make any sense? Paul is going right to the heart of the issue. If Christ is not crucified, then what what are you about? Why why would, would be why would we be called Christians? Why would we have any attention to this man Jesus of Nazareth if he did not die? If he did not be crucified, even more specifically, on the cross. Right, crucifixion is a death and execution on the cross. If he did not accomplish that, then why are we giving him any attention? Why not give more attention to Cicero or or David, King David, or or other figures in history? Why Jesus? If the crucifixion is anything, and even as we get into chapter 15, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then our hope is in, in, in nothing. There, there's no hope for us. If there is not a victory over death, which is the most significant curse of God upon us, I understand the confusion of languages, another horrible curse. Wow, what a, I mean, God wants to do something. He, he goes after it, the, the confusion of languages. But the death, the curse of, of sin upon our lives is removed. It's conquered through Christ in his resurrection. Well, if Christ is not raised, then that our hope is in vain. It's, it's futile hope. And even the apostles are liars because they say they've been proclaiming all over the world, at least the Mediterranean world, Christ is risen. Well, if he's not raised, then the apostles are false teachers and, and are, we're, we're undone. We've got to go back to the scriptures. We've got to take God at his word. And that's what Paul is saying you guys can think about these things and make, ex make not excuses, but evaluations and um, exceptions and all these different things. But if it's not based on God's wisdom, God's word, then you're totally off base. He has said so much in, these, in the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2 about wisdom against human or worldly wisdom. Now he comes to the point, well, wait a minute. There is a wisdom that we teach. It's not that we're teaching nonsense. It's not that we're just teaching arbitrary statements. No, we teach God's wisdom. The world doesn't understand it, but let me tell you, we give ourselves to the preaching of God's word. Let me read uh, for us. I'd love to read much more than I'm going to, but beginning at verse uh, 6 of chapter 2, 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing the issue okay, I've really un undermined or undercut the whole basis of human wisdom, worldly wisdom. Let me teach you about something, uh, teach you something about God's wisdom. So in verse six, he says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are being abolished. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the wisdom which has been hidden, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. It's kind of awkward place to stop, but we'll stop there. We'll look at these uh, four verses, six through nine this morning. It's a large part of a larger context, of course, as Paul is working through this. 
But he is very careful to say, look, we talk about God's wisdom, but God's wisdom is put in opposition to worldly wisdom. We'll see in these few verses here, verses 6 and, and so forth, the superiority, the superiority of God's wisdom. I mean, there's human wisdom, but where does that get you? Let me tell you about God's wisdom and even the futility and the abolition or the nullification of man's wisdom. We'll see God's wisdom is a hidden mystery. We'll talk about mystery here in just a moment, but uh, the hidden mystery of God's wisdom in verse 7. And then in verse 8 talks about the inability of, or inability to recognize or to celebrate or, or receive or, or uh, acknowledge even God's wisdom. And finally, the gift that God gives, the gift of knowing God's wisdom. Well, beginning at verse 6, it says, we do speak wisdom. He had just been talking about the, the weakness of his, of his preaching. His preaching were not persuasive words of wisdom, verse 4. But he says, we do speak wisdom. It's not that we're talking gibberish. It's not that we're talking nonsense. Now, uh, the world would, would say that you are. What about this crucified Christ? What about this resurrection? We don't want resurrection. How foolish would that be? And yet Paul says, we do speak wisdom. It's God's wisdom. It is in, in distinction to what, what uh, the world celebrates. We do speak it. And notice he says, we... He had said earlier, like in verse 3, he says, I was with you and my word and all this thing. Here we have a plural. We are doing these things. So is this, is this the we of uh, the authorial or majestic we? We, Paul, and you know, he's just talking about himself. Or is it Paul and the other apostles, the teachers? Or is it, is it all Christians? Either way, any of those things are true. We as Christians, we or they, the apostles, speak wisdom. That's what we're about. We are speaking God's truth. We're speaking, and it's not like, well, there's God's truth and man's truth. It's kind of like my truth and your truth. No, there's truth. And who does it belong to? God, which is to say he originated it. He defined it. He sets its terms. So if we want to know truth, probably ought to go back to the book, God's word. We do speak. And notice he's used other words here, preaching, uh, um, proclaiming verse 2 or verse 1 of, of chapter 2. But here he says, we speak, we just, we utter, we have a conversation. When we talk, we utter and, and minister God's word through our conversation. So we're speaking God's word, uh, God's wisdom rather. But notice he says, we're doing this among those who are mature. Among those who are mature. This word mature can introduce a whole or reintroduce the issue that Paul is trying to address, and that is certain of the Corinthians and certain of the Greek philosophers would have maybe a, a secret wisdom that is only for the initiates, for the, the uh, informed people, the um, elite uh, folks of the society. And so you could think, well, man, Paul, are you saying that, that you speak wisdom only among the elite members of society, those who either have... Uh, family connections or maybe societal uh, status or other thing. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who are mature versus those who are childish. If you look forward in chapter 3, he says, he gives this contrast. He says, I, brothers, was not able to speak to you as spiritual men, but as to fleshly men, as to infants or babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not able yet to receive it. Indeed, even now you're still not able. You're still fleshly. And he says, because all these this jealousy and strife among you are not fleshly, are you not walking like mere men? The contrast he's making here, as he's done in other places as well, is not between uh, if, if as a, a second tier of Christians where there's, there's your, you know, get in by the skin of your teeth kind of Christian, and then there are those who are the enlightened ones. Paul's not saying that. He's not saying that, okay, I, I do speak among those who are mature. No, he's talking about those who are in Christ. 
are to grow. You remember how he said it in Colossians 1.28? We proclaim, or him we proclaim, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man, and if you don't mind, every man, woman, boy, girl, complete, or here, mature in Christ. And he says, for this reason I labor. Working, uh, how does it go on? Verse 29, you can read it. But verse 28 is where it is. I, this is what I'm after. I want every person to be mature in Christ Jesus. Every person to become that mature adult, like it says in Ephesians 4.13, that we, that God has given these gifts until we all attain to the unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of Man, to a mature, I like to say it this way, to mature adulthood, to the measure of stature which is the fullness of Christ. And otherwise, in other words, the, the measure of adulthood or maturity is Christ Himself. He is the measure. If you want to know what is a, a good person, a godly person look like, look at Jesus. Submissive to the Father, kind and gentle, bold, righteously angry and indignant on various occasions, kind and generous and giving. All he, What is maturity? Look at Christ. And so Paul says, I am speaking wisdom among those who are mature, and even those who are maturing, those who are in Christ. In fact, in this, this passage, passage, verses 6 through 16, this, this last part of chapter 2, there are a lot of different contrasts that he sets up. One of them is here, speaking God's wisdom versus human wisdom. He makes the contrast, as we just identified, the mature, grown-up kind of Christian versus uh, the immature, those who are babes in Christ, still in Christ, they're Christians, but they need to grow. And don't we all need to grow? Don't we all need to have a an appetite for righteousness, hungering and thirsting, if you don't mind, after righteousness, and wanting God's truth, not just uh, around us, but in us? Don't we want his truth transforming our minds, the way that we think? Because it really comes down to this. What are you thinking? Because what you think in your heart, you're going to speak. As a man is in his heart, that's what he is. That's who he is. And so we want this transforming work of God's grace not just to be, I know I'm going to heaven when I die, but I don't want my life to change right now. I'm pretty enjoying my life. Your life needs to change. Your actions, your appetites, the desires of your heart, the, the words that come out of your mouth, the things that you celebrate, the things that you... Uh, uh, brag or, or counsel other people to do ought to be from Scripture, ought to be directing people toward God's wisdom, God himself. We have this desire then to celebrate what God has revealed to us and to share that with others. It says here in verse 6, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of the, this age who are being abolished. So here, again, the contrast, God's wisdom versus Whatever the wisdom of the world is, is recognizing, this is a wisdom not of this age. So there is a wisdom of this age. There is a, uh, if you don't mind, a uh, allowable opinion kind of a thing. There, you don't get out of line because you know the world says this is how you need to speak. This is what we're all after. This is obviously from the dawn of creation, which they wouldn't acknowledge, from the dawn of the Big Bang. This is how it's been. And it hasn't been. It's only been like that for the last 20 minutes. But now everybody celebrates this, and this is the new norm. No, that is foolishness. Go to the scriptures. Go to the word of God. The world, excuse me, this age does not accept God's wisdom. The rulers of this age does not accept this wisdom. But notice how he says it at the end of verse 6. The rulers of this age who are being abolished. Who are being abolished. Putting put to shame, verse 27 of chapter 1, the weak things of the world, he shames the things which are strong. He is shaming these things, abolishing, verse 28, abolishing the things that are. He's just nullifying it. it comes to no effect. Uh, just 
God and all and all of his strength, all these people who are, it reminds me of Psalm 2, the nations and uproar and so forth. Done. God speaks. Psalm 46. Amazing. When uh, God speaks and the earth melted. What? What kind of power does God have? The power to create and, if you don't mind, uncreate. And he will undo, he will abolish, he will nullify, cancel in the right kind of sense, uh, bring to naught or futility the rulers of this age, the most important people uh, of this age. And notice twice it says it that way, this age. There are, there are so many things that we get all uptight about in this age. Why? There's an age to come. There is, uh, there, there is much more going on than just what we experience in this period of time. Even from time of Adam and Eve, from beginning of creation until this day, God is active and over all these things. We're so much given toward the, the rule or the, the appetite of, the, of this moment, but God says, no, these things are being abolished. They're going away. They're passing away. The world and all of its desires passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. He says, this is a wisdom that we speak. This is what we're about. A wisdom, not of this age, the rulers of this age. We speak, verse 7, what do we speak? God's wisdom. This is the wisdom, the, the, the knowledge, but it's not just knowledge because otherwise it would have said knowledge. Talk about knowledge, real knowledge, genuine knowledge, depth of knowledge, real knowledge, understanding. It talks about it in different ways. But here he's talking about wisdom. And we saw wisdom back in Job 28. We see wisdom in, in Proverbs. We see wisdom celebrated throughout. It really, if you don't mind, a, a brief kind of summary, even a, a, child, a child's definition is Wisdom is the ability to know what God wants me to do and then doing it. So it's an ability to know, understand, even to appreciate what God wants me to do and then doing it. So there's a connection between what I think and what I say and do, between our, our if you put three different characteristics in it, creed, character, and conduct. We believe, and therefore it affects our character, who we are, our, what we value, what we do, but then it affects our conduct, what we're about. And so he says we're speaking God's wisdom that affects every aspect of our lives. We It's a whole orientation, whole new foundation for our living. We speak God's wisdom, but it's a mystery. And we think, oh, so it's hard to understand. It's a puzzle. We've got to figure it out. No, it's not that kind of a mystery. In fact, Paul uses this term a lot of times in his writings, and it does not ever refer to some kind of a something you need to figure out or something that you know, we have. God has given us clues, but we got to put those clues together. We need to, you know, put our heads together. No, it's not like that. It is a mystery in that it's hidden. We don't even know it's there. It is something that is secret. It is something that if, if we weren't told about it, we'd never know that it was there. We would never have any clue that we're missing out on this particular thing. It is a secret which human uh, ability, uh, whether uh, sight or hearing or even our rationality of what's going on in our heart, we can't get in there. We can't penetrate. We don't know uh, what's inside the box. We don't know what's beyond this. We, we can't. There's a, there's contrast. You'll have to look this up. This is extracurricular. If you were to compare Romans 1, the things that are revealed about God in Romans 1, which makes men without excuse that we know, everybody knows there's a God. There's no question about that. If you look at what Paul says about God revealed in creation in Romans 1, and then look at what we read, just a, just a verse of that passage at the end of Romans 11, we, that's our opening scripture reading, there are certain things we cannot understand God. He's there, Romans 1, we know certain things about him. He's holy, he's sovereign, he's cr the creator, he's the redeemer, all these wonderful things. 
But then Romans 11, there are things we cannot understand. There, if you Another, this is a postscript on the extracurricular activity. If you were to look at Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, and you see what, it, what, is, what can man learn, what can human learn through creation? Just a general revelation, as we call it. A lot of things we can know about God through general revelation. But then in verse 7, whole different basis. Uh, instead of general revelation, like we would see in Romans 1, right? General, we have a special revelation or divine revelation through uh, the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testament of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. And so we need God's word in our lives. We need that foundation to know these kind of mysteries that we wouldn't know that we're there at all. This is a hidden mystery and kind of compounding the idea. Mystery is hidden enough, but this is something that has been concealed. It is inaccessible. It is something that the, the brightest minds, again, the rulers of this age, have no clue what's going on here. They're all over here celebrating this. Meanwhile, this is where it's at, and they're missing, and they turn their backs on God's wisdom. They refuse to acknowledge God's authority, God's sovereignty over all these things, His wisdom. They try to figure it out on their own. This is something that God has concealed. He has hidden it from those who are the, the uh, rulers, the leaders, those who are you know, the, the folks that are supposed to be in the know, right? Uh, another passage you could look at, Luke 10, when Jesus gives thanks that God has hidden these things. Uh, John 10, beginning at verse 21, Jesus says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. Wait a minute, what are you doing, God? Why are you being so coy or ruthless? Well, because they wouldn't, they wouldn't acknowledge. They would not. It's a stumbling block to them. It's an offense to them. So he hid it from them. He's revealed them to infants, those who, like Jesus says in Matthew 18, unless you turn and become like a child, you will not enter. You'll not see even the kingdom of heaven. You've got to become like a child. You've got to be one who will receive instruction from the Lord. These who are wise and intelligent, they've got it all figured out. They can't be taught. <laughs> they need to repent. They need to become, if you don't mind, in the words of Proverbs, simple so they can be taught and rebuilt on the truth of God's word rather than the, the, the false wisdom of the world. He says, Jesus goes on, Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and, notice this, and every, anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Well, who does, who does Jesus reveal desire, or, or how does it say, will to reveal God the Father? His chosen people. He delights in sharing the truth of God, Father, to those who would acknowledge, those who are babes, those who are infants, those not infants in the a lack of maturity, but infants in that we need, we are open to receive from the Lord, not closed-fisted and closed-mouthed and not able to receive instruction. Those who are humble and submissive, again, in the words of Isaiah 66, verse 2, God, to whom does God look? Those who are humble and and contrite of spirit, and to tremble at God's word. That's the attitude that we need to have as we approach Scripture. Again, as we read it on a daily basis, that's the attitude we want. Not the, okay, what, what errors, what omissions can I find in God's word today? You know, what kind of contradictions? You know, because that says over here, and that says, we come not in that stance, mindset. We come as if we're receiving the word of God implanted, as if we're receiving this as the living word of God coming down, not for us to stand in condemnation of it, but for it to condemn us, but not in a, thankfully not in an eternal sense, but in a convicting kind of sense. Hey, let's, God, 
word of God shine upon our lives so that we would change. We would recognize, boy, I thought I was doing, I just see this word. I've read that verse before, but wow, it hit me just this just a different way. And now I need to change in that regard. Thank you, God, for revealing your word to me. You've made me become like a babe. You've, you've taught me to become one who is so dependent upon your word. And he says, the world does not celebrate this. Jesus says, they, you know, thank you, God, for hiding these things. This world, the rulers of the world, they're being abolished, but we speak God's word in a mystery. Notice it says it's been hidden. God on, on purpose is hiding these things, and sometimes it's judgment, sometimes it's mercy, because the more people know, the more truth they know, the more culpable they are, the more responsible they are. Read Matthew 12 and 13, how Jesus changed tactics uh, in terms of his parables. Now, parables weren't just intended to instruct or give it, you know, positive examples, uh, but to hide the truth of God's word that God, the Lord Jesus, just interpreted to his disciples, those close to him, gave the meaning of these parables. So even in that, it's a, it's a judgment, but also a mercy. God, in his wisdom, has hidden these things. But notice, this isn't God kind of, okay, playing catch up, or he, you know, the world's gone off, and now he's trying to make things up and make things right. Uh, he's you know, caught off guard and he's make, doing the best he can with what he has. No, this is a wisdom. This is God's approach to life. This is how we ought to conduct our lives. It is something which God, notice it says it, it duplicates this, this idea, predestined before the ages. God, This is a wisdom predestined. It's pre-established. It's predetermined. It is something that God established the boundaries of. God is the one who decided beforehand. It's not uh, uh, off the cuff or an ad hoc uh, you know, to this kind of a situation. No, he has established this, it says, uh, from before the ages. Before the ages. So if there's an age, that's time. And so before time began, God had established this wisdom. He had said it. He had determined it. It is the one who, God is the one who is not haphazard. He is intentional. He is sovereign over all these things. He takes everything into account. Uh, he determines all these things. There's, there's not a bird that falls without God knowing. There's not a hair of the head that falls. God is attentive to these things that we would just, why do you care about the birds after all? And there's birds. God cares. It's his creation. He orders everything. It is not an arbitrary thing. This is predestined. This is that which is, again, determined ahead of time. And again, the idea is he determined it ahead of time before the time began. So it's, you can't get around it. You can't say, well, God, you know, he looked down the corridor of time and saw this and knew that this was going to happen, so he'd made things. No, he set the whole pattern. And how do we understand that? And our limited, finite understanding, we can't. It's hard to understand, but God is the one who established these things. He did it. And notice at the end of verse 7, he did this for our glory, to our glory. We're the, advan the one's advantage here. I mean, obviously, God receives the glory through all these things, but he's done it so that we could receive glory. And you think, well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're uh, yeah, that's right. We, we should be glorified. <laughs> don't, you, don't you realize, y'all are sinners. And so I, we're all... For us to receive glory from God, that is grace. We deserve the thing that Jesus endured in our place. We deserve that death. We deserve that separation from God. But God says, no, let me send my son to take care of that for my people. And you come and you receive the glory that I don't share with anybody. I'll give you some of that glory. I will be glorified 
or I will, God says, I will be glorified in you. And we see a hint of this whole chain of salvation, this idea of God saving people both by justification, that we're declared righteous, but then he doesn't just declare us righteous, he makes us righteous little by little. It's called progressive sanctification in this age, less, hopefully each day, less like we were yesterday, more conformed to the image of his son, a progressive sanctification. But there's a coming day, which he says here, that we are, we receive this wisdom to our glory. There's a future day in which we will be glorified, the glorification. So justification, sanctification, glorification, we look forward to in that day when our salvation will be complete and we will be in the presence of the Lord, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, clothed even as Revelation 19, I think it is, says we are clothed with the righteousness, which are the righteous acts of the saints even. And how does that inter interact there? But we see that God is about glory. We see that he is the one who celebrates everything that is good and beautiful and light and, and wonderful. Romans 2 also talks about that, the contrast between what the wicked people receive, which is ignominy, if you don't mind, you can look it up in Romans 2, versus glory for Christians. And we think, well, why are we pursuing glory? Because that is what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be in God's presence, to receive and share in that glory, which alone is God's. He says, God has done these things for our glory. In other words, God had us in mind as he is pre-ordaining, pre-determining, predestining all these things. He had us in mind as recipients of this wonderful glory, this, this benefit. Did you pick it out? Uh, we read it in, in John 20 this morning as Jesus was talking to Thomas and he showed him his wounds and put your hand in my side and so forth. And Thomas' response was, my Lord and my God. And Jesus responded to that, is it now that you believe? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. Who is he talking about there? Us. Jesus commended us who did not see the risen Christ. We're just basing our faith on the testimony of the scripture, the testimony of the apostles who were there, the eyewitnesses to his glory. And he says, blessed, favorable, happy are those who enjoy the testimony, the witness about Christ, having not seen it themselves. We see this glory that is coming. It says that we have this, uh, or rather the rulers of this age, verse 8, going back to the idea, the rulers of this age, not one of them. Well, it's God. I mean, surely, surely there's some. Well, no, not really. Because they're so full of themselves, they cannot be taught anything. They're so convinced that what they are thinking is right that not one, not one of the rulers of this age has understood has not valued, has not sought the, the truth of God's word, the wisdom. They say, no, God, foolishness. It's an offense to me to talk about a crucified Christ, which means, well, if, if God is going to judge sin through death, well, that means sin is pretty bad, isn't it? But I'm really a good person at heart, and I don't deserve that. I'm much better. To, and so there's that whole basis of human wisdom that says, nah, has no appetite, no need for God's wisdom. Well, how do you deal with that? You can't. What, what do we do? We speak God's word, but God has to give, we'll see this next time, God has to give the understanding, the willingness to submit to that wisdom. Uh, we see it, we'll see it in verse 9, but then in verses 10 through 16, really celebrate the fact that this revelation of God's wisdom comes through the Spirit. And wow, Jesus is celebrated through this. Paul celebrates the Spirit of Christ uh, as he goes on in verse 10. But he says, not one. 
No one of the rulers of this age. Now, there's some discussion, just as we saw back in verse 6, none of the rulers of this age, uh, which are being abolished. Some people would take that idea of rulers or leaders or sovereigns or the, the chief people as talking about demonic or supernatural spirits which Paul does talk about other places. Uh, he talks about that in uh, like Revelation, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6, the spiritual forces. He talks about that in uh, other places as well. But I don't think he's talking about the spiritual rulers, spiritual forces. I think he's talking about human people. That's the whole the, um, contrast he's making here between God's wisdom and, and human wisdom or rationality and so forth. And he says, none of the rulers of this age, none of the human rulers of this age has understood. They don't value this thing. They don't see it. They don't recognize the the truth of God's word. They just don't know it. And it's, it's not a, a ignorance of information. It is not a lack of information. It is a, like Romans 1 says, a willful, determined hostility. I mean, just knowing the truth of God, rejecting it, and seeking rather the lie. Celebrating the lie, worshiping, orienting the whole life around the lie, because the truth would require something of me. It would require me to turn from myself, turn from my sin, turn to God, who is a righteous, holy, loving, but holy God, terrifying to me. I'd rather enjoy, if you don't mind, the fleeing passions of sin and the righteous eternal acts of, of God, and the righteous glory that God gives to those who believe. Wow. Can, do you know some people like that? Were you like that? Are you like that right now? Where you hear the word of God and you say, ah, I don't need that. I, I'm doing fine by my own big self. God help you to humble yourself under God's word. Recognize not one of the rulers of this age has understood. They don't value it. They don't know it. They refuse to know it. They refuse to talk about it, refuse to acknowledge it at all. They are, are happily convinced of the lies in their own mind. Verse 8 goes on. He says, look, if, if they had understood it, if they had understood God's wisdom, God's truth, God's whole agenda, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Again, talking about that distinction between, is he talking about spiritual or supernatural forces or human? Anytime you read about demons interacting with Jesus in the Gospels, they know exactly who he is. They have no question. You are the most high. You're the son of the most high. You are, you're Jesus. Hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you do this? Or not just if, because you are, since you are, in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, the temptation of Jesus, why don't you do this? They knew what was going on. There is a deranged idea in, in Satan's mind somehow that he thinks he can have victory over Jesus. Even on the cross, there's victory to be had. But it's the abolition, the ab, uh, abject uh, impoverization. Is that the right way to say it? Of just undermining, canceling. Colossians 2 talks about that. He has canceled the certificate of debt. He's, he's nullified all the kingdoms. All the The point is, if these rulers of the earth understood who Jesus was, they would not crucify it. Well, wait a minute. Didn't, didn't, didn't Jesus have to be crucified? Yes. It kind of reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew 18. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. It is inevitable. There's going to be sin. There's going to be solicitations to sin. So it's inevitable that those come. But woe to that man through whom they come. 
Don't be part of that sin. It was wicked sin to crucify Jesus. He is, as Paul says, the Lord of glory. That phrase, Lord of glory, is used only here, and, and it's talked about the God of glory in the Old Testament time. Uh, it, it talked about the author of life, Acts 3, uh, these different things, but he's talking about our glorious Lord Jesus, or the Lord who is the glorious one, even God, the Father, Yahweh himself, Yahweh, uh, Psalm 29, verse 3, the voice of Yahweh is upon the waters, the God of glory thunders, Yahweh is over many waters, and the God of glory, talking about Jesus, they would not have crucified him. But we think, well, didn't Jesus have to die? Didn't he have to be crucified? Yes. But they would want, if they understood God's wisdom, they would want no part of participating in that. They would have run away. Just as Pilate, Pontius Pilate, was warned by his wife and knew better than to hand Jesus over to the, to the will of the mob, he knew better. But he also was fearful of his political uh, position and so forth and said, okay, wash my hands, it's on your heads. If they understood, they would want no part of it. It doesn't mean that Jesus was not have been crucified, because there'd be other people step forward and be willing to, you know, just get him out of here, kill that man, Jesus. It's amazing. As you read the Gospels, Mark, Mark has 16 chapters, but in Mark 3, the religious leaders are already willing, let's kill this guy, let's destroy him. Enough of this thing. At least the other Gospel writers give a little bit more time before the animosity toward Jesus is so pronounced. But these they're just unable to recognize God's wisdom. They refuse to acknowledge. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Christ would have been crucified anyway because of God's plan, God's promise, and yet they would not have had that participation in it. They would not have done these things if they valued what God's wisdom. But it's not something that they can, they can know. Only here in verse 9, just as it is written. Now, Paul likes to quote and refer to and allude to and summarize uh, statements from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And here, the, the quotation uh, can be traced back to some lines in um, Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 4. Some other things that he says, Isaiah says in chapter 65 or 17, and maybe a little bit from 52, 15. Some other ideas, maybe there's some, some truths that Paul is quoting out of some... Um, extra-biblical, apocryphal kind of books, the Apocalypse of Elijah, for example, or the Testament of Jacob, Testament of Jacob. Anyway, the idea is a loose kind of allusion or, or um, a statement that Paul is addressing or building on from the Old Testament, and it's not just Isaiah. And I'll point this out in just a moment. What Paul is, is bringing together is there's no basis that people have, human people have, to appreciate, to value, to uh, long for, to, to strive after God's wisdom. These, let me just read it, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. We often think of that in terms of heaven and the joys of, of eternal life and so forth, which, yeah, I mean, God has prepared these things. But in the context here, it, it's, it's the wisdom of God, it's the plan of God and salvation that we, it's inaccessible. It is a hidden mystery to us. Things which the eye has not seen has to do with the the ability for us to observe and and through our senses to to receive the input to to by the power of our empirical observation we we can't get there we can't we can't the eye has not seen these things what the ear has heard well we haven't heard it and it has the idea of uh, not just seeing it firsthand but hearing about it from other people so receiving instruction uh, we saw this in the course of Job's. Uh, conversations about, well, I've seen this, or I've heard this, or the teachers, the ancients have said this. Nobody's talked about this. 
at least in the human world kind of sense, a lot of prophets and so forth have talked about it, but these worldly wise men refuse to acknowledge it. Things which I, personal evaluation, has not seen, things the ear has not heard by other people talking to us, that, those things which have not entered the heart of man. So even input, whether the, through the eyes or the ears, but even what we meditate upon, what we try to puzzle through, you know, um, Rene Descartes, uh, the one who said, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, right? You think. Well, that's what you're all about. And so I can't deny myself. He's trying to deny all these different things. I, that's, I can't rest my, my whole idea, my whole identity on this. But I think, I, I can't deny that. I'm thinking right now, are you really though, Rene? Uh, I think, therefore I am. But things, you can't even enter the heart of man. You can't contemplate these things. You can't imagine these things. Like Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, uh, beyond whatever we could ask or think, God does these things. We don't even know the questions to ask. It's not enough to know the answers, but even the questions we don't know. Things which have not entered the heart of man. This combination of eye, ear, and heart are throughout Scripture. We see it several different times. For example, um, I mentioned Isaiah 64, but what about uh, Deuteronomy 29? Yet to this day, Yahweh has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. A combination of eyes, ears, and heart together, and God has not given you. You, you can't understand it. God has not given you these, this ability. In fact, Isaiah 6, context of Isaiah seeing the Lord Yahweh uh, exalted and thrown in, the, in this temple and so forth, he says, render the hearts of this people insensitive. What? Render the hearts. Not just the emotions. We think about hearts like a Valentine's Day. No, it's it's the seat of volition. It's the seat of <clears throat> of thinking, of evaluation, of assessment. It's, it's, it's not just feeling hearts and, and thinking minds. No, mind and heart are together. So render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Healed. So he says, look, these people can't figure it out by themselves, by their own observation, by hearing from other people. They can't think about it themselves and come to the right conclusion. Only by God's gift, all that God has prepared for those who love them. You can't figure it out in yourself. It's a hidden mystery. You must be given that gift. God has prepared these things for everybody. Not for everybody. Not everybody will accept it. God has prepared these things for those who love him. And you think, well, if that's all it is, well, everybody loves God, right, in their own way. And we're going to see next time about the, those who are spiritual. Spiritual is a big term in this, even these days. Spiritual has nothing. The way the world uses it now has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about. Spiritual has to do with relation to the Holy Spirit. Spiritual people in our day and age, they're just religious. They just have something going on that has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, has nothing to do with God. God has prepared for those who love him, who are coming to the Father through Jesus the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, made alive through the Holy Spirit. What's this all about love? Well, humans in their own natural setting are hateful toward God, hating God, insubordinate to God, treacherous toward God, refusing to acknowledge him. But to those who love me and keep my commandments, God says, Exodus 20 and verse 6, God shows loving kindness. He is He is so willing to, to show what he has prepared. The command that we see, even uh, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8, lest we think, oh, loving is, uh, no, it's all throughout. And Paul says, God gives righteousness uh, to those, to me, not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing, to love Jesus, to, to love, to orient our lives, to value him, to appreciate him, to obey him, to cling to him, to run to him, run to his wisdom, 
as all throughout here. We speak a wisdom. It's not like the world speaks. We speak a truth that the world does not celebrate. They can't celebrate it because they don't know about it. They refuse to acknowledge it. But we know, based on the gift of God, God has prepared these things for those who love them. Love him, rather, who love God and will receive the gift that he offers to us. That's what we're about. That's what we offer. That's the contrast that we, it's not that we celebrate it, that we're different, out of step with with the world. But we say, look, it's the world that's out of step with God, and he is the pattern that we're after. I mean, the world, again, just like a bunch of crazy monkeys tried to pound each other, pound uh, naysayers or, or Christians or the truth speakers down. What do you do? How dare you? You're such a condemning, a condescending, uh, better than all of us. How, how, how do you know that all this is true? Because God said it. And if you would just humble yourself, you can receive that understanding, that wisdom too. Would you turn to God? Would you turn to his wisdom? Would you find your whole center of life, your satisfaction to him, and share that good news with others. You can't convince them. You can't persuade them into the kingdom. No amount of evidence, no amount of whatever is going to do that. But by speaking God's truth, God's word, we see, we'll see it in chapter three, God is able to bring that increase. God is able to bring that salvation to those. But it starts with sharing God's wisdom. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your wisdom, your truth, which is so profound and so telling. And we pray that we would be attending our hearts to that, not just our hearts, but to direct other people's hearts as we have opportunity to share the truth, the authority of your word, the veracity, the life-changing work of your word. We're grateful that you are the God who has hidden these things, definitely, but you're also the God who reveals them. You're the God who shares them. You want people to share in your glory to those who would be in your presence, to rejoice in you, to give honor to the Son and celebrate what he has done for us. We pray again that you'd save, that you'd sanctify us for your glory. We pray that you would be the God who is so kind to work in our lives at this point. Of course, we want all glory, all praise and honor and wisdom and power and thanks to go to our Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us to celebrate him, especially as we go into a new year. We thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.